John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Amen. We thank God for the reading of his word this morning. Well, the first section of um, John is called the prologue, or is often called the prologue, those first 18 verses. John is presenting theology, some very deep theology. From verse 19 on, it becomes narrative, the story of Jesus uh, in the world. And we're going to see um, his work, his teaching, his miracles, and especially his death and resurrection. Uh, We start at verse 19 in January, but today we look at the last part of the prologue, verses 14 to 18. And John, in this prologue, is making a mighty statement about who Jesus really is. He's describing for us the real Jesus. And this is extremely important, that we believe in the real Jesus, because if you believe in the wrong Jesus, then you're not believing at all. You are in trouble. John almost waits to the end of his gospel to tell us what his purpose is. And there it is. Right at the end almost, verse 31 of chapter 20, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We've got to really believe in the real Jesus to really have life. And in the prologue, we have a summary of of what John came to understand Jesus to be. Uh, equally God, eternally God, the spokesman of the mind of God, the articulation of the thought of God, the God who is all-creating, the God who is all-life-giving, the God who gives 
lights. And what is key in our passage today is those first four words of verse 14. The Word became flesh. The one true eternally creating God became man. He became soft baby flesh. God was contained in a baby's body. And John says, I've seen him. I've heard him. I've touched him. The creator of the universe came in human form. And so we might say, one writer puts it like this, the one true God became human. The infinite became finite. The immortal became mortal. The creator became part of creation. The eternal one entered time. The omnipresent one was confined to the space of a human body. The omnipotent one lived inside a young girl's womb. The Almighty became a helpless baby. The deity was wrapped in rags. The king of the universe was born in a stable. God became flesh to save men and women of flesh like me and you. And John was gripped by this doctrine as we should be gripped by this doctrine. Of course, John also, as we said earlier on, wrote one, two, and three John, as well as the book of Revelation. And in the epistles particularly, he picks up many of these uh, issues. Uh, with time just to, to, to look briefly at one, we began our service with these words, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life, Jesus. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. He talks there about Jesus always existing, um, coming to us, fellowshipping with us, and giving us real joy, the fruit of a restored relationship. John was gripped by this kind of doctrine. He was there. He heard Jesus. He saw Jesus. He touched Jesus, the one true God who had become flesh. And he never got over it. He never got over it. And rightly so. And neither should we. May this real teaching about our real Jesus really grip our hearts so that we might believe and live. Believe and live. Now, there are so many false Christs around today, so many wrong views of who Jesus is, so many errors about who he is and, and what he did. And oh, you, they'll all come out now at Christmas time, all these people and other theories. He wasn't really God, or he wasn't really human, he didn't really die, didn't really rise again from the dead. He's not 
the only way to heaven. The list goes on and on. The doctrine of Jesus is an assaulted doctrine. Of course, it has to be. The enemy has to do that because it's so important. It's crucial that we understand who Jesus is. We must know and understand who he is. And, and, and I know vast majority of this mor- people here this morning will probably say, you know, oh, I, I believe in Jesus. I'm sure that's what you're saying in your heart. But here's the question I ask you. Which Jesus do you believe in? Do you believe in the real one? Last Sunday night, I, I, I quoted John MacArthur. J- John MacArthur says this, It is damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. It is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as to believe in no Jesus. God became flesh made his dwelling among us so that he might save us. He made his dwelling means Jesus tented or tabernacled uh, among us. He came and lived in a human tent of skin and bone and hair and other stuff. John saw that human tent. Our bodies are like earth suits, just like an astronaut has space suits. Spacesuit enables the astronaut to function in the conditions found in space. Our earth suits enable us to live as human beings. Now, think about your earth suit. Some of our earth suits are probably in slightly better condition than others. As we get older, we find the earth suits begin to have a few problems. But when John saw Jesus... He saw God in an earth suit. But he saw more than that. He saw more than that. He saw the glory inside. And that's what we want to think about in these verses this morning. As the Word became flesh, as Jesus became flesh, this is what he saw. John saw Jesus being the glory of God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. God's glory, in a sense, is a sum of all His attributes, of all His perfections. When John saw Jesus, he saw the beauty, the glory, the perfection of God. Now, John might have been thinking about the transfiguration when he and James and Peter saw Jesus in all his glory, he would never have forgotten that event, even though, by the way, he doesn't record that in his gospel. We'll note that as we go through. But he was thinking about the glory of God revealed in Jesus. He probably thought about the miracles of Jesus. Very soon we're going to be in John chapter 2 when Jesus changes the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. We have seen his glory, he says. Rightly so. At the raising of Lazarus from the dead, another one we'll look at eventually when we get to John 11. The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. We have seen His 
glory. And just before the cross in John 13, now is the Son of God glorified, and God is glorified in him. John can say, we have seen his glory. And as we go through this gospel, we're going to see the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus. But I think John also had in mind the invisible attributes of God's glory, not just the visible ones, but the invisible ones. And I'm thinking about his, his love and his grace and his purity and his holiness and his mercy and his compassion and his patience and his justice. He saw it all. I saw it, he says. I heard him. I was with him. I walked the roads with him. I ate with him. I witnessed it all. We have seen his glory. The real Jesus. Worth believing in, isn't he? The real Jesus. Again, there are many images of Jesus around today, most of which are far removed from what the Bible has to say to him, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That was very common in the days when liberalism sweeping through our churches, a sort of harmless, gentle spirit no one would take terribly seriously, like a hippie and a nighty kind of image. Or the fiery-eyed radical, you know, who's going to over, overturn the establishment. That's another kind of view of Jesus. And in the midst of all these images, we could cry out, Will the real Jesus please stand up? In fact, I had a book of that title. Somebody borrowed it and didn't return it. But I still remember the title. Will the real Jesus please stand up? And in John's gospel, guess what? He stands up for us to see the glory, the glory of God. And it's written in such a way that all of us can understand, and we should pray for each other as a church, that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and ship what we think and believe about the real Jesus. God became flesh. He became flesh, and He pitched His tent among us. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw, we witnessed His glory, the glory of God. Does this excite you? It should do. It should do. But there's more. Jesus is the grace of God. You notice at the end of verse 14, full of grace, and then 16 and 17, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful and inviting picture of grace. Not incomplete grace, not half-measure grace, not installments of grace. Full grace. Now, there are many definitions of grace, I know. But I think the simplest definition is the generosity of love. Generosity of love. Grace is love giving itself. And that's what we see in Jesus. From the fullness of his love, we have all received one loving blessing after another. We could paraphrase verse 16. It's a picture of a fountain just brimming over with love and grace, just continually pouring out love and, and, and grace. And God's love is to his people. God's love is to his church. And God's love is 
to sinners like us. And when grace is poured out, it's, it becomes more than adequate, abundant, adequate, amazing, sufficient grace, love. So when we're weary, what does grace, what does grace do? It gives us strength. When we're confused, grace brings wisdom. When we're doubt-filled, grace brings faith. When we're selfish and lazy, grace enables us to be generous. When we're proud, grace enables us to be humble. When we're lost in self and sin, grace brings salvation. It's a beautiful word, isn't it? Grace. Yes, it brings salvation initially, but it also brings two, two ideas, beauty and charm in everyday life. You think, think of the most gracious person you've ever met in your life. And I think two of the words you might describe that person is that they were beautiful. They were charming. Not gruff, not nasty, not selfish, not critical. Charm and beauty. Actually, are some of the ideas behind the original meaning of the word grace. Beauty and charm. The early church in Acts 4, two lovely descriptions of the church are, are given. Great power and much grace. And the verse 16 there, this is what he wants to pour out on us. From the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. That's what he wants to do on us as a church. Oh, 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 if only we would say, pour out your grace on us. And then let us receive that grace. Because when we would, it would change everything. It would change the way we view each other. We would have time for him. We'd have time for one another. We'd have less of self and more of him. We would be able to love the unlovely. We'd be able to give more, serve more, be charming and beautiful. All from his inexhaustible grace. And the more we receive, the more we will experience, and the more we will need, and the more he will give. And it just goes on and on. From the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another. We can't reach our potential as individuals, and we can't reach our potential as a church without God's grace. Jesus lavished us with his grace, and this is the real Jesus. He is the grace of God. And then, of course, he is the truth of God, verse 14 and 17, full of, that should be, sorry, that should be um, truth, full of truth. Um, and then verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We can't really separate grace and truth, but truth is a manifestation of reality. That's the beauty of truth. It, it, it's reality. It's the way things really are the unveiling of what we need that's real and actual, and it's freedom from 
sham and facades and phoniness? Are you weary of just pretense, the pretense of the world? Where we put sticking plasters over the wounds of society and we pretend that everything's okay when it's not, when we need the truth? Well, Jesus is the truth of God. And in verse 4, you remember we saw that Jesus reveals light and light. In verse 14, he reveals grace and truth. He's really saying the same thing. Jesus is full of grace and truth just as he is life and light. Verse 15 actually takes us back again to the ministry of John the Baptist. We saw his ministry in verses 6 and 7 last week when Jeff opened up those verses. We'll return to the ministry of John the Baptist in verse 19, but verse 15 is important. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. In other words, what he's saying there is, He's presenting, highlighting the concrete historical stage onto which the miracle of the incarnation occurred. See, the revelation of the truth of God in Jesus took place in real time, in a real place, among real people. Can't you hear John the Baptist preaching about Jesus? There he is! Grace, truth, the Lamb of God... The God-man, we're going to hear that. And of course, verse 15 is almost like a riddle. He says, he, uh, he comes after me, and yet he's greater than me because he was before me. Basically, he's saying, the eternal God is full of glory and grace and truth. True truth. True truth for, for you and for me. You know, this, this can't be, don't, don't fall for this lie that some people will say, oh, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Or, or don't fall for that kind of lie that says, oh, it might be true for you weak-willed people who need to come on a Sunday morning to church, but actually, it's not for the rest of society. We're, we're talking about true truth that's true for everyone. Absolutely everyone. That's why we preach him to all, because he is truth, the truth of God. And even for us Christians, we can sometimes, you know, we can shrug our shoulders, and we yawn, and we roll our eyes. Oh, here we go again. Jesus being born as a man. Oh, give me something, something new something fresh. The gospel says no, because this is electric good news. This is like Semtex, powerful good news that should thrill our hearts and compel us to take his message all over the world. Hey, world, we have good news. Jesus is God. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth that we all need to hear. The central fact of faith, the central fact of history. For law was given through Moses, verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law points to the need of Jesus, and Jesus came to meet that need. Moses gave us the law, but Jesus gave us grace and truth. 
Are you excited? Lastly, Jesus is God. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. So God is spirit. He's invisible. Yes, at times in the Old Testament, he, he reveals himself in a voice or in um, a wind or fire, or sometimes even uh, in, in a person. But he fully, completely reveals himself in Jesus. That's why verse 18 is so important. Has made him known. Wouldn't you like to have God made known to you? I mean, God is invisible. We can't see him. He doesn't look like anything around us. So how are we going to know him unless, of course, he becomes just like us? He becomes just like us. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. The word John uses is where we get our word exegesis. In the sense, he expounds the heart of God. He makes God known. Jesus, we see Jesus presenting the very heart of God, the character of God, a heart full of love and compassion, the character of grace and truth. We see it all. It comes to us perfectly. As one commentator says, in God there is nothing unchristlike at all. In God there is nothing unchristlike at all. See, by myself, what am I? I'm a bankrupt sinner. I'm selfish and stupid. I'm lonely and lost, but Jesus shows me a loving Father and gives me divine wisdom and gives me wonderful salvation. So what, you might say? So what? Did God really become flesh? Yes. Yes. And he can sympathize with our problems and our weaknesses and infirmities because he's man. Did God become flesh? Yes. He can supply the perfect example and pattern of daily life, the true standard of holiness. Did God really become flesh? Yes. Then let us see in our mortal bodies a real and true dignity and not defile them with our sin. Jesus was not ashamed to take upon himself a human body. So what does John say the purpose of his whole book is? So that we might believe and live for salvation and for every day believing and living. But why Jesus? This is our last question. Why Jesus? Because he is the glory of God. Because he is the grace of God. Because he is the truth of God. Because he is God. That's why Jesus, that's why it's his gospel, it's his church, and it's his salvation, it's his life, it's all about him. May God 
fill you with his spirit and his word. And, and may, may they together release within you a confidence in the power and majesty and wonder of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we <coughs> thank you for all that we've heard in these three studies in John about believing and about living, and we're excited about where this is going to take us as we think about the rest of this wonderful gospel. And so we pray that each of us today will know the might and the power and the wisdom and the truth and the grace and the glory of God that is presented to us in Jesus. Bless us, we pray, for his glory. Amen.